Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Joshua Jackson. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognizing and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organizations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you're in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Each week on this program, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of business, education, politics, sports, or, or even from local communities in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this country work. We get their take on the current economic and political landscape of the UK and discuss everything from uh, international relations and global treaties to national insurance price hikes and, of course, the, insurance, the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. On today's program, I'm delighted to be joined by James Fisher, Chief Product Officer at Click. And uh, without further ado, James, welcome onto the show. Good morning. How are you? Thank you for for taking the time to to appear today. Um, you know, I know it's a, a busy schedule you've got, but um, just so that we can sort of introduce everybody to you and and to Click, can you just let us all know, you know, who you are and and what you do? Absolutely. So, as you said, I'm the Chief Product Officer here at Click. My role is to support uh, our innovation and, and and product strategy, and and really ensuring that we're delivering solutions that meet the needs of our, our global customer base. And, and, and actually, that's all about helping our customers uh, work with, with data and derive insights from data that creates value for their organization. So we provide a, a set of technologies that help uh, organizations take raw data uh, and make that analytics ready, moving it to where it, it will provide value uh, and creating then the set of, of tools and capabilities that uh, allow uh, individuals, teams, and organizations as a whole to find those hidden insights that help them do things differently and and, and uh, compete better in the market and uh, really drive drive more business and organizational value for themselves. Well, obviously, data is something that everybody always talks about, everybody wants, but people don't tend to know sometimes what the, the sort of main drivers are to, to get the most out of what they're looking at. And I'm sure we'll uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail as we get further through. But, um, you know, it's almost impossible to ignore at the moment the, the challenges posed by, by COVID, by business interruption, by, you know, worldwide economic um, slumps and, and in and out lockdowns across the world. And, you know, it's just... Give us an idea of, of how you've you've coped with that. Has there been any major changes or, or has it been sort of relatively smooth sailing for you? Well, I think like everybody, um, you know, back in February and, and, and March of, of 2020, there was a, a huge degree of uncertainty for uh, us as an organization and, and us as individuals. You know, uh, all of our lives changed uh, uh, overnight. I put my passport away and, and haven't been here in airport uh, since. Uh, but as an organization, you know, we've built an incredibly resilient uh, business that is, is highly responsive to uh, our customers and our, our global ecosystem of, of, of partners. Uh, and that allowed us to, to, to really uh, watch what was happening within uh, the market and respond accordingly. So like many organizations, um, you know, we moved directly into a, a hybrid working model. Um, uh, and we're highly adapted to that, given the the, uh, the infrastructure and the capabilities that we have. Um, but of course, we're in the business of, of data uh, and analytics, and 
uh, you know, very quickly we saw the the uh, uh, the uh, armchair epidemiologist became a, a a word that is forefront in all of our vocabulary. But I suspect it probably wasn't um, uh, previously. Uh, and really, what we saw happen at that point was that organisations around the world really focused in on the need to understand what was happening, to be able to react and preact to all this uncertainty that uh, COVID-19 uh, brought into to all of our lives. And that really drove uh, a big uh, continued growth in, in investment in analytic and uh, data technologies, but also a change in the way people are looking to, to consume uh, data and analytics. You know, the shift to cloud had been something that had been uh, prevalent in in this and all enterprise software uh, uh, businesses for a long time, but as a result of COVID, that has dramatically uh, accelerated, and that uh, and that is a great opportunity for Click and a great opportunity for us to work with our customers. That is true. You do the the having people to have, take a step back. You know, not panic and actually assess what's been going on within their business and how they can adapt to it has really been accelerated um, here. You know, actually understanding what their business was, how um, they needed to you know, still engage with their customers and understanding what their, their customers or their partners needed, um, you know, from them has been a, a, a you know, an incredibly important change that I think, um, you know, a lot of people were unprepared for. So when it comes to, you know, yourselves and understanding data and, and working with your partners what do you actually mean when you say that people need to you know have a sort of insight driven culture yeah absolutely so one of the things that's really interesting is you think back over the, the last 10 15 you know maybe even 20 years where you know the growth in in you know management information systems business intelligence systems now you know, predictive AI, machine learning technologies, and see that the evolution of the technology, the amount of data, the complexity of data that exists has, has, has always continued to uh, to change. But what's really interesting is that despite all of the years of investment that um, technology companies like Click have made and, and uh, you know, end user organizations have made, um, we're still really not getting the, the results that I would suspect most business executives would, would you know, jump up and down about. Um, you know, just uh, some data that we've been pulling together and working with a range of analysts sort of indicates that you know less than half of organizations really feel they have enough data for making decisions. Um, you know, less than a third of executives feel they can achieve uh, the sort of trans- transformational business outcome um, as a result of using data um, uh, that they should be looking for. Uh, and, you know, data literacy is a, a major roadblock in terms of individuals being able to work with data. So if you think about all of those those those, those statistics there, um, there's an opportunity to do a lot better. Um, but with all of these things, it's not just about the technology. It's not just about the, the business process. It's not just about the people. It's about a combination of all of those things. So this idea of a, an insight, a data-driven culture is really about ensuring that we, we think about how we're making decisions, how we're taking action, and how data can help us in, in, inform that. Um, and a critical component that, around that is how individuals trust the data. Um, mm. You know, we, we, we often you know, look outside our windows in, in the morning um, and we look and see what's happening with, with the, the, the weather. Um, we also look at our mobile phones and look at weather apps and talk about what's going on uh, with the weather. And, and, you know, you tend to look at that app and, you know, it's an effect on analytic. It's about big data. It's about forward-looking information. It, it's multidimensional. 
uh, in nature. It's an analytic with a very simplified UI so that you and I can understand what's going on. Um, but here I am in, in southwest London. And, you know, if it was to tell me it would be 40 degrees today, I'd probably challenge that because I know I've got context that that's not really um, normal for, for where I live. I'd also look out the window and, and, and validate it and see gray skies above me and say, well, it's not really going to be 40 degrees today. So it's about that ability to, to challenge, to understand, to, to know how to apply data and then to trust it, to take the action um, that really is, is where we create value. And that's this notion of a insight-driven culture. It's much more than just the technology and the, the business process. It's about how we enable people to, to work within that environment and, and use it to their advantage. And, you know, that's one of the things that, that leaders of organizations really struggle with. A lot of the time, people become entrepreneurs or or rise up the ranks within their organization through gut feeling, um, through knowing what the right decision is, through through trusting their instincts. And it can be very difficult to actually ha- rely on numbers that are being provided to you. So what would be your you know, number one tip to leaders when they're looking at numbers in front of them and you know it disagrees with, with their inner feeling of what they think the direction ought to be? Well, I, I think there's a, a couple of points that are important here. I mean, first of all, um, you know, with that weather example, right? You know, I've got 40 years of, of, of looking out the window, seeing, seeing the weather, right? It's a lot of experience. Um, you know, and, and individuals that, that have built careers have got rich domain expertise, they're experts in their field, have a level of understanding that allows them to, to critique and challenge data. So that notion of, of knowledge to, to, to a degree, the gut feel, if you describe it as that, that's a really important part of, of the, the analytical process, right? That ability to natively use what we as individuals, um, you know, really, you know, that human intuition, right, is, is a really critical component of, of everything that we uh, uh, we do. It's how we ask questions and then how we ask the next question. Um, so that notion is, is, is really, really important. But there's also the component around making sure that you have all the information such that you can, trust the data that uh, is, is made available to you. Um, so knowing when to challenge it, knowing where the data came from. I mean, I suspect many of, of, of your listeners have been in those meetings where you spend more time arguing about, well, is that the right number or where did that, that, that number come from? Um, how did you calculate uh, that metric? Or Well, actually, is that this week's number or is that last week's number? Um, all of those types of things. Um, you know, sort of get in the way of, of the real the real question of what is happening and what should we uh, do about it. So not only do you need to bring that uh, human intuition, that business knowledge to the to the data itself, but it's also important that as organisations and as executives, we drive um, uh, our teams to make sure that we've got uh, a good understanding of, of where the data came from. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, a single version of the truth is always the answer. In fact, it's, it's in many cases an unattainable um, uh, goal. But understanding and how you work across multiple versions of, of, of the truth, where a data point came from, ensuring that everybody is looking at the same data point sort of brings those two worlds uh, together. So again, classic combination of making sure that the technology supports the delivery of trusted, 
analytics and business-ready data, context is worth ATIQ points uh, after all, uh, and then combine that with the, the knowledge, and, and I think you've got a winning combination. So, you know, at Click, how would you potentially help people to to get, uh, you know, insight from the numbers that they're looking at from, you know, from to, to help with their process of decision-making? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that, that we're working on and, and are, are part of our, our kind of innovation strategy, and they really span two different components, one around the, the technology and one around um, this notion of, 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 of data literacy, which is which is, is critically important. From a technology perspective, our, our vision is all about enabling uh, an analytic data pipeline that takes raw data from wherever it resides, um, makes it analytics ready, which means it's structured in the right way, um, but then gives you that business context, right? That, gives, that has a language, a glossary, a lineage around that data that gives you that foundation of, of, of trust. On top of that, we're now in a unique position to leverage AI, machine learning, cognitive technologies to help users of any level, of any skill level uh, or, or executive level within an organization, right the way down to an operational worker, to, to gain an insight, to ask a question in natural language, which previously would have been you know, all about looking at a very complex spreadsheet or, or even a very complex dashboard. But there are now so many different ways we can deliver data and insight that stop the analytic being the destination and actually put that information into the hands of, of executive business, knowledge and operational workers, wherever they are that they're, they're working on, whatever device they're. Uh, they're working on, and then more importantly, being able to trigger the action out of uh, of that insight in a highly collaborative way. So the technology supports that pipeline of data and really enables us to, to get to what I call active intelligence. This idea that we have access to as much real time information as we need, uh, but also having the ability to uh, not just inform but trigger the action uh, action out of it. On the data literacy side, sorry. Please. No, no, carry on, carry on. No, on the data literacy side, it's really uh, about enabling the skill of users within the organization. And this absolutely is not about um, how you use a piece of technology. It's not about how you use Click products or any other analytic product for that matter. It's about understanding how you need to read, uh, work, argue uh, with data. Uh, how you need to tell a story with data, how you can in, in, interpret it, what is the right way to represent uh, data to answer a, uh, a question. Uh, and that's a whole set of, of, of skills that need to be applied at different levels across the organization. And we made a, a huge investment um, alongside a, a, our ecosystem of partners mm -hmm. in, in things like the Data Literacy Project to ensure that we can um, help organizations, help individuals, um, get the right level of data literacy that will help them be successful in in their job. Well, I think one of the things that a lot of people you know worry about when it comes to to data, and as you've mentioned, sort of AI learning, machine learning, uh, it's that this is something for you know, multinational organizations, large organizations that have a lot of money to spend and to put these processes in place. But if you're a you know sort of budding entrepreneur and you've got a, a small business um, that you're looking to expand, would you, how would you um, you know use let's say your insights um, to you know help a help a smaller organization rather than somebody that has you know offices all over the world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we're in a, uh, an age now where access to data 
um, you know, is, is ubiquitous. Uh, we're in an age now where, uh, you know, the ability to analyze that data, you know, is, is a very democratized um, process. So, yes, if you're a huge organization and, and have, you know, teams of hundreds of data scientists, that gives you a set of skills and an opportunity to do things that perhaps a small organization shouldn't. But absolutely, you know, whether we're, we're students, uh, you know, still learning our, our trade, whether we're uh, new into uh, employment, um, you know, whether we're entrepreneurs working in small teams, the ability to ask a question of data is something that is accessible to, to, uh, to everybody. And again, the application of AI and machine learning you know, if done in the right way, doesn't require a huge amount of heavy lifting. Um, you know, as just a great example of that, the, the role of conversational analytics, you know, the ability to, you know, ask a question of the data rather than having to, to build an application or, or, or build a dashboard, um, you know, is, is, a, is a baseline feature of our own uh, cloud product that, you know, any individual can go and sign up for a trial today or go and, you know, buy an individual user license for it and, uh, and away they go. Um, so it's a, we're in a world of, of democratization of, of, uh, of data and analytics. And, and again, I think, Joshua, that's one of the reasons why this notion of data literacy um, is, is so important, because I think that um, we've grown up with this idea that there should be a big team of people, a big infrastructure of, of people that are producing all these analytics and dashboards and sending them out to us, all these reports we need to go and, and, and look at. And that's really not um, you know, how we can best capture the opportunity. It's much more accessible than that. I think that's really positive for people to hear that, uh, you know, through through the right amount of education in yourself, that you don't need a huge team <laughs> to be, as you say, pulling reports and potentially bloating, um, you know, the, 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 the data that's coming through the analytics and the decision making processes. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, a great thing for, for small sort of leaders or small business leaders to, to be hearing that these things can be done, um, you know, at small scale rather than rather than just for the for the big boys out there. Um, so, James, if we're looking for you know business leaders um, to be able to engage a little bit more, do you have any sort of advice for people on how to actually you know improve themselves, read the data, and uh, uh, you know engage more with their organisation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and ultimately, you know, trying to eat the elephant in one sitting is probably not going to be the right way to approach it. So, what I'd simply say say three things. First of all, you know, set clear data expectations. What do you want to achieve? What are the goals? Um, and, and be realistic about um, what they are. Use that as an opportunity to, to, to deliver a success and, and, and build value. Once you've defined those goals, then map out the roadmap to, to achieve them. What steps need to be taken? In what order do you want to go about um, you know, knocking those things down? Um, and perhaps most critically, you know, is, is give your team members uh, the, the right tools to be successful. And that is about the, the technology. Uh, it's about the processes. Um, but as we talk a lot about, uh, it's also about making sure there is the right training, the investment in people, uh, not just in the technology itself, but actually how they need to work with data. That's a really interesting point. Um, you know, making sure that the people that you're working with are are able to to adapt and um, you know learn alongside. Um, and I'm sure something that that people will take note of and 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 uh, hopefully implement within their own organisations. But uh, you know, if we're sort of you know looking ahead, um, you know, a bit to the future now, what 
do you think the upcoming trends are going to be? Will there be major changes in the space? Um, or do you think that, that things are going to be relatively settled for, from here on in? Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and you know, we're always looking at, uh, at what's going to be coming next as part of, of my and my team's uh, role, ultimately. And I, I think that as we we, we, we move through the, the, the pandemic and, uh, you know, I, I have a, a bit of a pet peeve with this notion of, you know, post-pandemic because I think we're still we're still figuring out what, what's going on. There's, there's still, you know, um, you know huge issues, uh, you know, around the world with, with, with what's going on. Um, but as we as we bring things together, as we start to think about how we're going to continue or how we're going to work and in, in, in live in this environment moving forward, how we're going to deal with, the sort of level of uncertainty, which is going to be normal now. We're moving to a world of, of, of much more connectedness, uh, where everything is going to become much more interwoven. So that ability to, to uh, innovate with data, um, the ability to see across multiple silos with data is going to be, is going to be cr- critically important. You know, we're, we're going to continue to see an acceleration in terms of the movement of, uh, of data and analytics infrastructures uh, into the cloud, into software as a service environments. Uh, we're going to continue to see a, a growth in uh, the application of AI and machine learning uh, uh, around uh, those capabilities. But at the same time, um, you know, we have, have, have got to address this issue of, of, of data literacy in the workplace and in in, in uh, education, um, because as that drive for the, to make use and differentiate and, and compete and innovate with data moves forward, the workforce has got to keep pace with that. And I think we're a little bit out of balance um, right now. So I think we've got to do much more around that learning uh, component with data, empowering uh, uh, people to work with data in order to take advantage of that opportunity that I think uh, I think really exists. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, you know, making sure that people do grow up with uh, the education there, um, you know, to be able to actually, you know, work within the, the more technological world. But um, you know, the world is also becoming a more fractured place. Um, you know, especially when it comes to now the internet. There are now technically three internets: the European and American, the Russian, the Chinese, um, and that's going to make things looking very difficult for for sort of cross-platform work. Um, what data is allowed to be sort of gathered, and it's becoming a very sort of hot political topic. So, you know, I can imagine there's going to be plenty of sort of you know policy changes um, within the space, rather than uh, potentially sort of you know just the the technology and the the literacy carrying um, you know catching up, as you say. Um, but you know, yourself as sort of chief product officer, what have you got coming through the pipeline? It click is there anything you um you know you've, you've got coming up that's innovative or or going to be breaking boundaries or is it um you know just sort of consolidating the, the current product range well no i mean never stop innovating right i mean so look, I, I, you're, you're absolutely i just want to pick up actually the point you made earlier the the, the, the governance and compliance around around data you know is, is a is a really important topic and one that we we absolutely shouldn't uh, forget it's a key component of how as individuals we trust data um, and a data literacy itself is is also about um, our understanding of, of how we protect data either our own personal data or organizational data that's a key part of this skill set that we need to understand as a uh, alongside the how do we work and uh, and manipulate that, that that data so we can get the insights that uh, that we want um, to that point, actually, this 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 issue of sort of multi-geography, um, you know, multiple compliance leg- legislations is is really, I think, going to continue to persist an idea 
of hybrid infrastructure in the world of, of data and analytics. That, that ability to work with data across multiple jurisdictions, whether it's on-premise, in public or private cloud, um, and the ability to to ultimately work with data wherever it resides and run the compute on the analytics wherever it resides. And that in itself is one of the big things that, that we're working on right now, making sure that we can support um, uh, what we regard as our, our customers' data needs so that we will support analytic use cases that get the best of uh, cloud environments in terms of speed of adoption, delivery of innovation, performance scale, uh, and cost of ownership, uh, but at the same time, uh, give the ability to work uh, with the customer's data wherever that resides, both in terms of the physical location of the data and where the end compute uh, resides. So we're working on that right now, some really exciting stuff coming there. Um, and then, and then our, our, you know, beyond that, our focus is very much around how we help organizations drive adoption and, 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 and use of data, whether that's an individual or small team uh, or a large enterprise. And that starts with what we're doing around the catalog, uh, making sure that data is easily searchable, findable, uh, the lineage of it is, is understood, it's trusted, so that people want to work with that data. Uh, and then it's about finding and generating those insights, being able to apply AI and machine learning uh, to those problems but then draw people into the into the process through collaboration, through alerting, uh, and some really exciting stuff um, will be uh, announcing very soon around the automation. So not just informing, uh, but actually triggering the action, uh, pushing that action to wherever uh, the indiv individual is. And that's all about driving engagement, driving adoption, uh, and and lowering the the overall cost of ownership while while speeding time to value for customers. So lots of really exciting stuff coming from uh, from Click on that front. Well, it sounds like uh, you've got a busy few months ahead, um, you know, being able to to adapt to all of these things. But um, uh, you know, it'd be absolutely fantastic to sort of have you back on the show after some of these projects have come forward. So you can give us a bit more insight into you know how they've been received, um, dealing again with the the, the sort of politics of uh, of the space as well. As there's going to be an awful lot of change over the next few months, given the uh, uh, the treaties that have just been signed this week and. Uh, 17th of September for anybody listening um, and uh, James I just want to thank you ever so much for, for coming on and giving us a bit more insight into what people can do to uh, sort of improve their you know capacity to deal with with numbers with with data with analytics Thanks, it's been a pleasure to talk to you Joshua thank you very much thank you ever so much that was James Fisher, Chief Product Officer at Click. A really great conversation looking at an area which is very daunting for many business leaders to get to grips with and to actually understand you know, what the, the, the data is telling them and, and how to actually analyze the numbers that are coming through. Um, you know, Very much a, an important aspect at the moment to be able to put businesses forwards in, into the new world. But um, next up on the show, we have... Lord David Blunkett, Chairman of the Leaders' Council, and he'll be talking about the political chaos of the last 18 months and his expectations for the future. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. Uh, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape 
that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. 
this obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background. 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.